Thank you for your welcome. I understand that Rich sits down to preach, so I'm going to follow his example. It's also what Jesus did. It says in the Bible, Jesus sat down to preach. So, uh, in fact, just sorry, I wasn't going to say this, but I will. Um, in the early church, in the first two or three centuries, the, the, the preacher would sit and the congregation would stand. So I'll just wait. <laughs> Some of you are doing it already, which is good, so well done. No, listen, it's a real, uh, it's, it is so good to be here. Thank you for your welcome. Um, I think that being in a, uh, in a church at the beginning, um, being in anything that's new and as it starts uh, and it begins to get its momentum, is, uh, is, is, it's just a privilege to be able to say, I was there, you know, I began, I saw this thing as it began to emerge. I was there when it was born kind of thing. And uh, that's the kind of season that you guys are in. Now, that doesn't mean it's the only good season. So I don't want you to think, you know, when, when, when this church has got a two or three years under its belt, it's like it's no longer sexy. We go somewhere else now. Uh, maybe you will. Maybe some of you to go and start new churches in other cities for sure uh, when the time comes. But uh, that doesn't mean that, that, that churches don't go through exciting seasons as they grow as they reach a kind of adolescence and maturity and adulthood and multiply and reproduce and so on. There are all kinds of seasons, but there is something very special about this early phase. There's something exciting. I had the privilege of coming out here a couple of years now, seeing the, 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 the early progress of this community and knowing Rich and Natalia uh, as well as I do and trusting them as much as I do and, and respecting and loving them as we do. Um, it's, it's, it is a it is such an excitement to, to see this happening. And uh, you guys are part of something very, very good. Uh, fresh, exciting, and it's a good adventure. It's a good journey. So enjoy it and, uh, and go for it with all your hearts. Uh, I, am, I am here with a couple of friends, as uh, Rich mentioned, uh, Steve and Paul, who are sitting here on the second row. Uh, they're mainly here because of their dancing skills. And um, when I finish, they're going to get up and present the same message in dance, that's the plan. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. Um, we, we've, we've been very looked after uh, while we've been here. It's been actually been a real treat in lots of ways. Rich took us out on his sailing boat yesterday, uh, which was uh, amazing. I was really impressed as Captain Crosby uh, took us out. And um, I, f- I only found out later he learned entirely from watching YouTube videos how, how to sail. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad he told me afterwards. Uh, but, but we survived and it was really good. I'm here to, well, for lots of reasons, but, but, but to, this morning we're starting a series of messages, um, so I get the privilege of kicking it off, um, which is on the theme of anti-heroes, anti-heroes, um, and uh, I'm going to kind of launch this theme with you and pick up with one or two particular heroic characters uh, from the Bible and uh, try and try and help us to think this through. And if you have your Bible with you, maybe you want to turn with me uh, to the book of First Samuel, which is about a third of the way into your Bible, maybe a quarter. It's, uh, it's a few verses, just the first five verses, in fact, of First Samuel chapter 16. And, uh, and then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. But let me give you a little bit of a, a, a kind of a, an intro to this theme, the, the anti-hero. Um, I suppose we will, many of us, find the anti-hero in certain movies or stories 
a little bit more interesting than the conventional hero, perhaps because we feel we can relate to them more. They have a few flaws to them. They, they aren't the perfect kind of rounded figure um, that, that we might have come to expect from fairy tales growing up or from the kind of superhero films that, that's still popular. You know, people might find, I don't know, Jack Sparrow a little bit more fun or engaging than that Turner, you know, in the, in the Pirates movie, for example. And I suppose that that might be because we relate more to the person that seems a little bit more flawed, a little bit more kind of a few strange sides to them and edges to them. When we look at what the Bible has to show us and presents to us, I think that we are going to have to think through this whole issue. Of what, what, what is a hero and what's an anti-hero? What, what are we... Um, what do we learn, what do we aspire to? What are we going to try and be like uh, when we look through this this book? We we definitely spend our lives looking for inspiration. We we genuinely want to be inspired. We want to perform. We want to be heroic. There's an instinct in us. In many of us, perhaps it's particularly strong to prove ourselves to be the hero of our story. Uh, you know, just this week I've been uh, in town and, and on one occasion walking past chapters and saw a, a whole rack of a relatively, a book I haven't seen, uh, but it wasn't unusual in its title. I mean, it's, it's going to sound crazy. The, the book was called You Are a Badass. That was the name of the book. And the subtitle is something like How to Stop Doubting Yourself and Start Living an Awesome Life. And And it sounds a little kind of, just stupid and grotesque and over the top maybe to us. But let's be honest, there are loads of books like that, and they sell. The reason chapters have filled up a whole Windows section with that book is because it's going to sell, because it appeals to an instinct that's within humans, I guess particularly in some context. Maybe in Ottawa there's a lot of that going on where it's kind of, I've got to stop doubting myself. I've got to stop being the hero. I've got to be who I am meant to be, the awesome person that I am, has got to emerge. You know, the giant within has got to emerge. You know, the, all the kind of Tony Robbins type books. And, you know, I, I, I might sound like I'm just criticizing them. I'm not necessarily criticizing them. A lot of these books have got genuine wisdom in them about how to perform, how to do things well. And the Bible has good things to say about time management and just skill at living. And that's, that's not wrong. But I think that these will often appeal to a, a profound instinct we have within us to prove ourselves, to somehow demonstrate our, our kind of greatness. And I think what we do, perhaps without even realizing we're doing it, I guess for some of you, for example, you, you may have grown up with the Bible, grown up with Bible heroes and Christian stories. We bring that into our faith. We bring that instinct into our relationship with God, where really what my Christianity is about is I've got to be either by being highly holy and moral or by being courageous and standing out in the world for Jesus or, I don't know, by my sheer spiritual disciplines, my prayer life, my, my, my fasting, my, my influence in the world, my achievements for the kingdom of God. I am going to be a hero. I'm going to be a Christian hero. And, and that instinct, you know, I'm not, again, not downplaying it entirely. There's something about that that we could perhaps redeem. But, but I think when I, when, I, when I look at the Bible, 
I'm actually realizing as I read it and read it and learn it and learn it and understand it over the years that there's something dangerous about that perspective. Because actually what the Bible teaches is the story of a hero, one particular hero. We, we sometimes imagine when we look at the stories of a, you know, Daniel and Joseph and Esther and Paul, these, these are the heroes. They're anti-heroes. Uh, they're flawed at best. They're people with weaknesses, sometimes ones that, that shock us when we read it carefully and honestly. But the Bible doesn't present to us just uh, aspirational models. The Bible presents to us, in fact, people who are like us and therefore people who desperately need the real hero. And that's, that's the, the hero that's presented to us through the whole, the whole book. Now, I'm coming to you introducing this series with this story I'm going to read to you in just a moment for a reason. It's actually a pivotal point in the story the Bible teaches. So God, God creates uh, the world and he puts human society within it. He puts humanity in, in the world, the man and the woman together at the very beginning. They're made, you could say they are made as heroes they're made in his image. They, they represent God. That's heroic. But they, they, they fail in that they don't believe that it's enough for them. Effectively, they, they say, well, we want promotion. We don't just want to be like God. We, we, we don't want to just be made in your image. We, we, we want to be God. We want to take your position. We want to usurp you. Effectively, that's what happens. And it's, it's because of that that sin comes into the world. It's because of that the, the human race experiences the, the suffering, the struggle, the pain, the sickness, the injustice, the oppression, the death that we've inherited ever since. And, and not only those kinds of results of their rebellion, but even the, the rebellion itself, the instinct to rebel, the instinct to prove ourselves, the instinct to be the God of our universe is latent within us. It's something we, we carry around within us. We've we still got this tendency, even if it's sometimes kept at bay and we're polite and we don't kind of blurt it out in polite society. In reality, hidden within our kind of murky, psycho underworld is, is the same desire to replace God, to take his position. And... It, it's, it's, it's there even in the scriptural heroes that we read about. And, and as the Bible goes on, we realize this, this, this man and this woman in the garden, meant to be a kind of royal family. Adam is a kind of a king, God's, God's regent, God's prince, ruling over everything for God. They fall, they're, they're ejected from the garden. God later on recruits a new family, a new kind of royal family, a new tribe, a new nation. And there comes a time when that nation turns to God and says, we now want you to give us a king. Kind of like the nations around us, we, we like the stuff they've got and we want it. Like, you know, like your kids, you know, my friend's got an iPad and I must have one. It was the same instinct. We, we, we've noticed that the kids at school, they've, they've got a really cool king. We want one too. And God, it's a long narrative, but it winds up with God saying, you, you choose one then. You choose one. And they do. They choose, they choose one that would stand out according to their criteria. He's tall. He's handsome. He's impressive. 
He's, he's deeply respectable. In fact, I mean, it sounds like I'm being maybe a bit superficial. You know, he's tall and handsome. He's not just tall and handsome. He's, he's, he's worthy in lots of ways. He's noble. He even shows humility. He, he looks like a good guy. He's courageous. Uh, he, is a, he is a good guy. And everything about him makes you think, this is going well. This whole king thing, God's king on earth, reigning over God's people, this is the future. We're going to have all our dreams fulfilled and all our problems solved and all our needs met because of this, this king, this replacement Adam, this new Adam who's, who's going to set up things as they were in the garden. It's, it's going so well. And I guess maybe Samuel, who was Saul's kind of spiritual father, he was the, the one who raised up the king, trained the king, helped the king, looked after the king. He would have been particularly encouraged about how things shaped up, in spite of how it looked pretty bad at first. You know, well, give us a king, give us a king. And Samuel thought, no, they can't, that's terrible. And then he realized that Saul was a good man at first, and perhaps he was very encouraged. But gradually what happens is Saul starts to show his failings, his flaws, his weaknesses, and that those Adam-like qualities, that unwillingness to just trust God and rely on God and depend on God and, and just let God be God, Saul can't do that. He just can't. His pride, his distrust start to creep in like a kind of tragic hero in, in great stories and plays. And he turns into something pretty sinister. In the end, the, the thing that happens is he has the kingdom taken from him. Samuel has to deliver the news. You, you, you're, he's got to drop that, that bomb on him. You're, you're no longer the guy. And it's a sad story. And we, we're picking it up from chapter 15. I'm just going to read to you the first few verses, like subject of hero and anti-hero. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Did you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So I want to just draw out some things we see right here about how God deals with us in our kind of heroic, non-heroic humanity. Uh, the first of them is just how God shows sympathy. So let's just look at that. And... and Bear in mind that Samuel is, is heartbroken at this point of the story. He's, he's raised this king. He's, he's been encouraged. He's been excited. He's seen the future in this man. And then he's seen him blow it. He's seen him break his promises. He's seen him fail God in some horrendous ways. He's, he's about to see Saul get more and more wicked. Actually, the story gets more and more twisted. We start to see what's been under the bonnet in the heart of Saul all along. And it's dark. It's, it's a little bit like kind of Anakin turning to Darth Vader. It's that kind of a story. Or if you're more kind of classical, it's more like Macbeth. You know, if you, if it's like the kind of watching this 
apparently noble person twist and turn and turn into what he's been like, kind of the seeds have been there from the beginning. And Samuel is deeply disappointed. He's heartbroken by it. But it's worth pointing out God himself can sympathize with that. In fact, you look at the last verse of chapter 15. It actually points out Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king of Israel. It's interesting. It's the same kind of language as it says about when God first made humanity. In Genesis chapter 6, it has, it has God saying, you know, it's almost like, it sounds crazy language, but God regretting things? How can God regret things? But it's kind of showing how God's heart is genuinely at pains when he sees the weakness and the, the, the flawedness in humanity. God is sorrowful. God isn't just fickle about it. He doesn't just think, well, never mind, bad project. You know, just you live and learn. Let's, let's do something else. It affects him. He's moved by it. And when you read scripture more and more, you see that heartbrokenness in God, that the emotional side, if you like, of God's nature, the way he ex- expresses that come out more and more clearly. Most clearly in that when God becomes a man in the New Testament, as Jesus walks about the earth, when he is face to face with real weakness and human difficulty and flawedness, when he sees people's need, he doesn't despise it. He doesn't look down on it. He doesn't treat it as bizarre and alien and just kind of embarrassing and move on. He sympathizes with it. He feels it himself. One of his friends dies... And Jesus, at the funeral, knowing that he's going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, stands at the tomb nevertheless and weeps publicly, cries over his friend's death. You think, why would you do that if you're about to raise him from the dead? I mean, you're God. These things can't touch you. You're, not, you don't, you, you, you're above all this. Far from it. He's not above all this. God enters into our disappointment. And to know that is actually essential. To know that God walks with us in our disappointments, knows them, feels them, is touched with the feeling of our weakness, experience, the feeling of our feelings of weakness. And to go through life hitting the disappointments that we face, especially the disappointments with ourselves, to know that he sees our disappointments and feels them is important, it's comforting, it's reassuring, it's consoling, it's strength to us. To to know that he walks the road with us and feels our disappointment. You need to know that. Because however much we try to tell ourselves through the various paperbacks we see in shop windows that I am a badass, I am. I'm going I'm to show them. I'm going to show myself. And it's, a, it's the start of a new academic year. It's September. The summer's over. I'm getting into college, getting into to university. I'm getting into a new year at work. I, am, I this year, am going to be that hero. My discipline. I'm going to delf. And, and for a while, we believe it. And maybe we even have some victories. And so we believe it even more. <laughs> it's like we get led down the road sometimes by some impressive moves that we make. I mean, Saul's impressive. You know, the whole nation would have been thinking, this is so good. This guy looks good. It looks exciting. It looks like God's future is breaking in. This king idea is good. We have the future in this man. And it wasn't so. The thing we pinned our hopes to 
like so many things, it disappointed us. You feel that about a job, a promotion, about a relationship? Feel like that about a marriage, about a car? You know, just an, an acquisition, something I just got. You know, it maybe sounds superficial, but you know what it's like. You know, your hopes will be pinned to something, and it, oh, this, this, this was not what I hoped. This was not what I dreamed, and I'm disappointed. In fact, I'm heartbroken. Heartbroken because of this relationship. Heartbroken because of this thing, this, this child even, this son, this daughter. And so so. To know that God understands, comes inside our world, feels the weakness of it, feels the sorrow of it, is crucial for us. But we don't just see God's sympathy. We see God's answer. We see God breaking into the story. And uh, we we need to look at what it shows in in verse 1 here. How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king. Fill your horn with oil. Now, for us 21st century people, that's not exactly um, comforting. You know, okay, that'll, that'll do wonders. What's a horn? And what's all this about oil? <laughs> Is that going to be therapeutic? Maybe there are some certain holistic shops in the city that would suggest that kind of thing. But generally, that's not the way we do life. Uh, when I'm down, I don't go find a horn and fill it with oil. There's some meaning here that needs unpacking. Uh, when, when, when Samuel is being told, fill your horn with oil, he's, he's being told, there's another king. There's another king. The, the way that a king was prepared and identified was, was literally physically with oil, that would be poured upon their head. It's called anointing, anointing, covering, preparing. This was a way of equipping a, a hero to do the heroic. There's, there is someone who will be the anointed one. The word that would have been used in these Hebrew mouths was the word meshua. There's, a, there's one that I will anoint, a Meshua, the, the anointed one. And you know the Greek, the Greek translation of that word? Christ. God is saying to saying, I've prepared a Christ. I've prepared a Christ, a king who will be anointed. And I want you to go find him. And the, the verse is kind of pregnant with meaning because it says, go to Bethlehem. Now, if you, you, you don't need to know much about the Bible, much about Christianity. To, that name sounds familiar. He's, he's being told to go to Bethlehem because the future king is there. Now, in the story, the future king is the one that became king of, of Jerusalem. Oh, sorry, became king of Israel after Saul. David, in fact. But all that we read about David in the Bible is really like a kind of prototype. He's like... 1.0 Jesus. He's like the pre-Jesus, the pre-release before the full proper release comes. And so when we read about David, we're reading about a kind of precursor, that one that was born in Bethlehem, one who is anointed, one who is raised up, one who has promises made over him. 
And one who comes into the story as God's consolation, God's comfort, God's promise. God says, I see your disappointment. I see that you pinned your hopes to things that didn't satisfy. I see that you pinned your hopes to things that disappointed. I see that you pinned your hopes to yourself. I see that you thought you would cruise through that set of exams. I see that you thought you would hit those grades. I see you thought you would get those sales and you just didn't. I see that you longed to be as efficient and as impressive as she is and you're just not her. Or as as prolific and hardworking as he is and you're just not him. I see that. I see that about you, that longing to be someone else, that, that deep, profound disappointment with yourself. He says... He says to us in our disappointment, he says, fill your horn with oil, go to Bethlehem. I've provided, I've, I've raised up, I've got my eye on a king. <laughs> There's someone prepared. There's someone who will take the place of your disappointment. There's someone who is a substitute. There's someone who is better. And uh, we obviously, as I say, are reading about David, but we're reading about ultimately the son of David who came in David's line, in the family tree many, many generations later. It's kind of, again, something in the common folklore that when Jesus was born, there were these wise men that came to Bethlehem with their gifts, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. No one knows what those things are. Myrrh, who cares what that is? Just, all we know about it is it's impossible to spell. I still don't know how to spell it. I've been trying for 40 years. And, and uh, this is an oil. It's an oil that anoints people. So Samuel is sent to Bethlehem with oil to anoint a king to do great things. David is going to be given oil so he can take out Goliath, so he can kill tens of thousands, so he can extend the boundaries of Israel and become a great conquering leader. The baby Jesus is given oil to anoint him for burial. Burial? What is that about? How is that a victory? How is that a success? Jesus, in his death, won actually what is the greatest victory of all. He defeated the true Goliath, the true enemies of God. He defeated the true enemies of our souls, our, our enemies, our flaws, our weaknesses, our habits and addictions, our selfishness and pride, our Adam. All that is broken and cursed and tarnished and flawed and weak and lost about you and me. The way Jesus has dealt with it is not by destroying us, but by destroying the sin within us. By in fact becoming that sin on the cross. He was anointed to do it. He won his great victory there. And God has provided an amazing hero, an amazing anointed one, a saviour. In fact, it's interesting to me that he even says in in that verse, in verse 1 again, I've provided for myself a king. Even God is kind of satisfied with Jesus. (laughs) Even God is satisfied with the Messiah, with the anointed one. I just find that curious language. I've provided him for myself. If you ever think to yourself, yeah, Life is painful and difficult and disappointing. Following Jesus just makes it more so. Well, there may be truth in that. Following Jesus is definitely a challenge. It means picking up your cross. It means self-denial. It means pain. It means suffering, for sure. But never, ever imagine that you are the loser. 
understand that God the Father in eternity is satisfied perfectly with his son. Perfectly. He is well pleased with his son. What would it take to satisfy the heart of eternal God, almighty God the Father? And yet that's exactly what has happened. He is deeply satisfied with his son. And so in giving us his son, he's giving us his best. He's not saying anything piecemeal. The New Testament, Paul talks about this. He says, I count it such a privilege to to be able to proclaim what he calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. I've known Christians who've been Christians for 60 years, 70 years, perhaps some of them. And the people that have walked with Jesus for longest are often the best people for showing this because you get the sense around some of them that they're still just beginning to see how good he is. (laughs) They're still kind of learning. They're still like... It's still kind of childlike for them. They're still like kids on Christmas morning. At the moments where they catch a glimpse again of his beauty, his goodness, his kindness, his patience, his forgiveness, his love, his undeserved grace, it still surprises and excites them. And we need to understand, friends, if, if, if God is saying to us, in your disappointment with yourself, let me give you another one. Let me provide for you with a son. Let me give you my son, Jesus. Let me give you my perfect Messiah, the anointed king, as your substitute, as, as the one who is meant to satisfy and console you. You could not ask for a better gift. And to draw near to him is actually the way through in our pain with, and disappointment with ourselves. Let me just touch before we finish on the third thing. Only, I'm going over time slightly, but I'm going to just make this point. We've talked about how God's sympathy is on display. We've talked about how God's answer is shown here. Let me say finally God's pathway. I guess so far I've been giving you the kind of the big principles, but what does this mean for us practically? What is God's pathway for us when we're disappointed with ourselves? First of all, very simple, get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on the one he has provided for you. That's actually the essence of Christianity anyway. It's never been about trusting yourself, looking for the hero within yourself. It's never, ever been about showing the world that I am a badass. It's never been about that. It's always been about him. There's a great Scottish preacher in generation before who put it like this. For every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And don't we need that? I can spend it my, my whole day sometimes doing the other way around. <laughs> Where does that lead? Well, if it doesn't lead to sheer pride, it leads to sheer despair, which are basically two sides of the same coin anyway. I need so badly to get my eyes off myself on the one God's provided. On Jesus. We do that by coming to the table, by worshipping, by standing as we will in a moment and singing our hearts out. Not just today, not just in church, but through our week. Taking time to reflect and remind ourselves on the one God has provided for our soul. Do I find disappointment in myself? Do, am I, do I find weakness in myself? Yeah, every hour. And so because of that, I must look away. Look away to the one God's provided for me. Look at him in his perfection. Look at him in his beauty, in his perfect obedience, his perfect trust of the Father, his willingness to go through Calvary for me. Look at him and know that the Father looks on him as well. He looks on me, he sees his son. Take big looks at him. And then finally, if we, we start by, as, as, I mean, I, I would give you John chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God to believe in the one who is sent, to believe in the son. 
That's the first thing. But secondly, instead of not just looking at uh, Christ, although we, we, that's the fundamental thing, we also do what Samuel has to do in verse 2. We obey in the dark. We obey when we don't know everything. See, one of the problems, one of the weaknesses that we have, one of our flaws is that we tend to imagine that God has to cross all the T's and dot all the I's before we will trust him. And that's what heroes want. That's what self-made heroes want. We want to be utterly assured and certain of everything. We want to understand everything, and then we will obey God. But the whole nature of this anti-hero life, if you like, of following Jesus, trusting Jesus, let Jesus be the hero, is we don't get to know everything. But we do get called to obey even so. Samuel says to God, if I go and anoint another king, Saul will find out Saul will have me killed. Now that's a reasonable concern. He's not making that up. He's right. There's a threat. There's danger, real danger right there. And so he asks God the question. He says, God, what, what is going to happen if I do this? Is this, is this, is this going to work for me? What's going to happen to me? And you'll get through times. Listen, for some of you, the step of trust towards God, that you don't know what will happen if you take it. Let me say this as a final comment to some of you right here. And you know who you are. I don't know who you are, but you do. For some of you, becoming a Christian is a step that you know you need to take. You know, you know even today, you're thinking, I think I need to become a Christian today. The reason you don't is because you don't know what would happen I would obey him, but I don't know what would happen as a result. Maybe getting baptized. You know, I come to church, I become a Christian. Getting baptized, that's going a little bit further. That's a bit scary. What will my friends, what will my family think? What will will they think if I do this? Others of you, it's just telling your work colleagues that you're a Christian. It's one thing to come to church, but telling people I'm a Christian. The reason we don't do it is it's not because we... We are against doing it. We get that it's a good thing to do. But what would happen? What would happen? Just like Samuel, what will happen if I do what you're telling me? And here's the thing. I mean, it's, it's like that with so many things. You know, for some of you, it might be getting married, pursuing a relationship. What happens if I propose? What happens if I start this relationship? It might go wrong. Yeah, it might. We, we, we're called upon in life to make a lot of decisions that we just don't know the outcomes. We just don't know. And Samuel's like that. He says to God, what will happen? What, what if Saul finds out? God gives him, this is what I like, gives him an answer, but not the whole answer. And, and God is going to be like that with you. He's going to be like that with you. He's going to give you some information, but not all the information you'd like. But if you all your life wait for all the information you'd like, you know as well as I do, you'll never do anything. And it's certainly like that with following God. He calls us to trust him. And that's, that's, not, that's, not the, that's not the hero. That's the anti-hero. That's the one with the limp. That's the one that's just trusting, saying, God, I don't even, get, I don't even know if I can do this. I don't even know if I'm good at this, but I'm going to do what you're telling me to do. I'm going to do the thing that I think I'm supposed to do next. Even though I don't know how it's going to work out, I'll do it because I trust you. But you don't ever have to do that in the vacuum because you know if he gave his body and his blood for you, we're about to celebrate that very gift. We're about to remind ourselves very tangibly through bread and wine. Then, then he's got your back. He's got your back. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. 
We thank you for bread and wine with which to remember him. And we pray that as we celebrate with the taking of, taking of this, uh, this simple meal, this, this food and drink, as we celebrate together, as we sing, would you help us to have our minds fixed on who you are, not on who we are? And would you help us, Lord, to learn what it means to trust in obedience, trust in obedience day after day. Help us with this. It hasn't come naturally for us, but by your Holy Spirit it can. So we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when you're ready, I guess the way we'll do it is as we start the first song, you guys, we've got bread and wine on this side, bread and wine on that side. If you're a Christian and you're, you're ready to do this, just come to the tables, take bread, take wine, take them back to your place if you want. I would suggest you might want to pray together if this is perhaps is something that God's spoken to you about through the, through the meeting. Pray, pray with the person next to you, pray with one of the something you see that if you want prayer for yourself, you think I'd love people to pray for at this time or that or some other situation. Please ask. Please ask me or Rich or one of the leaders here. We'd love to serve you in that way. And uh, when you're ready, come to the table. If you're not yet a Christian and you're thinking, I don't know if I'm ready to take bread and wine, please don't. There's no pressure on you to do that. You're just very welcome as a guest. Um, and uh, just enjoy being here and watching it as, as we celebrate this last stage of the meeting. Let's, let's stand together. <laughs>